Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie, All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Curls on Film podcast. This week we'll be discussing satirical comedy drama The Square, as well as being joined by special guests, writer-director Ruben Osland, and leading actor and owner of the best name in the world, Clyde Bang. <laughs> I'm Sam Howlett, and joining me in this recording studio, a sanctuary of trust and caring, within which we all share equal rights and obligations, are the sequel to Chinatown, the two Jakes. Really? Hey, that's that's real good. And <laughs> real what's good. even better is that you checked with me before we recorded to make sure that that joke was good enough. Well, I said to you, I've got a really bad joke that I'm not going to do. And you said, please do it. Oh, yeah. So. yeah. <laughs> want to maintain the integrity of the jokes that we have on this show. <laughs> yeah, in terms of like cutting layered humour, I feel like Ruben Oslin would really be proud of that one as well. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Uh, speaking of the two Jakes, you watched Batman last night, didn't you? Which yeah. also stars Jack Nicholson. Yeah, definitely. That's that's a, there's a definite link there. And right. I totally was doing my research last night for the Square and thought, oh yeah, I'll rewatch that. And then it got to like ten o'clock. I was just like, nah, it's gonna be like the first hour of Tim Burton's Batman. <laughs> but uh, yeah, got Jack Nicholson in there. Two Jakes. I feel like I'm totally ready now to talk about this film. Excellent. Right. Yeah. But before we discuss The Square, uh, we've got an email to read out from one of our listeners who has reviewed You Were Never Really Here, which we discussed on last week's show. So this is from Leg Puppy, who says... Leg Puppy. Leg Puppy. Yeah. yeah. The Leg Puppy. The, uh, yeah, you know, um, the Leg yeah, Puppy. Yeah. He says, Joaquin Phoenix is quite simply magnificent in the role proving he really is one of the finest method actors of his generation. However, as a viewer, you were never really told uh-huh. oh, that's good. <laughs> what is actually going on. I'm normally a big fan of these kind of movies. I'm a Ter- Terence Malick fan, after all. So visual poetry is something that really moves me. I found the plot, or lack of it, disjointed and frustrating. The constant flashbacks are not explained in any shape or form. Did any of this actually happen, or was it just in his head? One thing is for sure, people don't wear seatbelts in movies. When you've just rescued a teenage girl from the horrors of a child abuse ring, the first thing you would surely do is put her seatbelt on. Also, how a madman who has just been on a what? killing spree can walk the streets covered in blood is also very hard to believe. I'm a harsh critic, but this film is massively overhyped. 5.5 hammer blows out of 10. Uh, this so, guy needs to set his priorities. Yeah, right? I mean, that's nitpicking, isn't it? Yeah. No seatbelts. <laughs> Yeah, I mean there were. I mean there was serious lack of seatbelts. That guy is just and and his driving style. He's just careening around. Isn't yeah. he? Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. Where's the road safety? <laughs> That's it, isn't it? 
the guys are, as he says, after all, he's a Terence Malick fan. Um, so, and like to me, You Were Never Really Here is totally not about the plot that's happening anyway. Mm. Like the flashbacks are short because it's telling us we don't need to know about that. Yeah, like, that's, yeah. that's not what we're here for. Yeah, he's going against the grain there. He and is. yeah, it's it's nice to hear some some stuff against the film. Um, but I can't say I agree with him. Should we employ his hammer blow rating hammer blow for system. every single film? Yeah, yeah definitely. Take it on. How many hammer blows a... out of ten? Yeah. All right, so Leg Puppy was not a fan of You Were Never Really Here, but we were big fans. If you haven't yet, do check out last week's episode where we spoke about the film in detail as well as listen to our interview with Lynn Ramsey. Yeah, and um, uh, when you've seen The Square and you've got some thoughts on that, which like you won't, you won't come out of it without, without something anything. to say, um, make sure you email podcast at curzon.com. Yeah. Whether you agree with us or on not. That. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. So The Square follows Christian, played by Kleist Bang, a divorced but devoted father of two and the respected curator of a contemporary art museum in Stockholm. As he's gearing up to launch their next show, The Square, a daring installation examining altruism and our duty to help others, his own views and social responsibility are put to the test when he becomes a victim of a scam, forcing him to question the world around him and his place in it. Meanwhile, a shocking viral stunt cooked up by the museum's PR agency is met with public outcry sending Christian and the museum into an existential crisis. There's a lot going on in this film, as you could tell there. Yeah. Jake, you met up with Ruben Osland and Klaus Bang, did you not? Yes, I was lucky enough to sit down with the guys at uh, London Film Festival a while back now. Really lovely guys, and went into a lot about the film, about the kind of silly elements that made it almost feel like a bit of a prank show at times on set. Um, but also, like, this guy's thinking on, like, 5D chess levels of uh, satire, which I'm not even going to try and play against. Extremely clever guy, Jake. You've spent so much time with him as well. Yeah, yeah. He's a, he's an interesting guy because the way that he puts together the films... I mean, we did, we did Force Majeure, which was uh, three years ago. And it just so happened that because he kept, he kept having to come over, he was nominated for a Biffa and then BAFTAs. And as he was doing that, he was pitching The Square. And his kind of process of writing is to pitch his next film to people uh, and then see what their reaction is. And then he'll... He's like a magpie. He'll like steal little ideas from people and then he kind of puts together... The film and like when he first start when he first came over and started pitching the square you're like how can this possibly be a film do you know <laughs> what i mean like the, he's just describing this kind of the art piece of the square and you're like this can't be a film yeah. and then the way he kind of ties it all together i think is kind of really really fascinating yeah we should point out that jake works at curzon on the distribution side uh with artificial eye uh, so he's worked on Force Majeure, which is Ruben Oslin's Oscar-nominated film from a few years ago. Uh, so, in a weird way, you've been on a bit of a journey from The Square since that time. Um, so, do you remember stuff that he was telling about The Square that you kind of saw at the time that has come out of it now? Or stuff that maybe he was talking about then that is not in this film? Yeah, I mean, I so specifically, I do the publicity, so obviously I feel very uh, triggered by the... PR people that are in this uh, <laughs> in this film, uh, and I remember actually having a conversation with him where he was saying that exact those, that exact stuff about how you're not competing against other films; you're competing against to get into the kind of news cycle and grab people's attention. You're competing against terrorists and far right politicians and all that kind of stuff. And how do you make your kind of film 
stand out against that. And I think when we were doing when we were doing Force Majeure, that was exactly the same time uh, uh, Roy Anderson, who's obviously also a Swedish director, had um, pigeons sat on a branch reflecting on existence. And it's like that kind of he, that way that he was selling Force Majeure as having like the best ever uh, avalanche scene in cinema history. And comparing that to someone like Roy Anderson, who's a kind of very gentle soul and isn't really kind of tapped into the kind of PR game. And it, I found that kind of fascinating how that then that commentary on his own behaviour filters back into his films and you then mm. see it in the square. Well, I do have a little chat with him about exactly uh, that moment in the film where he has to uh, create a viral video. Mm. So let's uh, have a listen to the interview and get back for some more Square discussion. Yeah, so this is, uh, <coughs> this is what happened when uh, Jake met up with Ruben Osterlund and Clive Bang. Enjoy. So uh, we're delighted to welcome Ruben Osterlund and Clive Bang onto the Curzon Film Podcast to talk about The Square. Thank you. Thank you. So, uh, guys, there's a, there's a marketing meeting in the middle of your film where the guys presenting say... When making films today, you need to be aware that people have a very short attention span. If the viewer isn't hooked in two seconds, they'll move on. So you start your two and a half hour long film with a guy asleep on a sofa. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I mean, I suppose what they are talking about is like when you're on the internet or I mean, because when you've got people in the cinema, I suppose they're gonna stay even if they see a guy sleeping. Yes. They're, they're gonna they're gonna see where it goes. Yeah, exactly. It's like two two different uh, contexts, of course. But but I think it's a true in it, of course. That that it's some, pointing out something about our time that that uh, people getting more and more restless to actually go to the cinema, and that's like something that we have to take as a challenge mm. nowadays. And we're talking the the day after this film was shown outside to people sitting on picnic blankets mm -hmm. on a hard concrete floor. Yeah, and everyone stayed, which and I they think stayed. is testament for, for the yeah. film. And they stay, and it's even not in their language. It's like a weird Scandinavian film. But actually, I've, 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 I've worked with a, another director at one point. That was for theatre. And he said something else. He said, you can actually allow yourself to bore people for something like 15 or 17 minutes. Then something has to happen. Yeah, sure. Otherwise, they will fall asleep or want to leave. But you don't have to... You can actually sort of ease the audience into I was like what don't we need don't we shouldn't shouldn't we yeah no 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 he's like no 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 don't let's not do any let's just be really let's ease the audience into this play and then so that attention span I mean but that's also something different because you've got the people sitting there I mean I suppose what they're referring to what they're talking about in in the PR meeting is like you're like scrolling a feed uh, scrolling from yes, a Facebook yeah. feed and no but I think that one one of really important things when it comes to uh, doing a feature film is the dynamics in the film that the, the dynamics and the rhythm is going up and down and sometimes you have something that is super intense and sometimes you're going into longer scenes because what I feel that very often happens when you go to the cinema today, they, the scenes goes like bam, 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 like that. And you never stop up in anything really. So you really go deep into something. And that is something that I'm missing quite, quite much. Mm -hmm. um, but I also think that, um, uh, I think that one thing that you want to do when you do a feature film today is like to get, make the audience excited. Mm. 
you want to you want to bring an important topic and mm-hmm. dress it in clothes and let them be excited because I don't see any contradiction of doing something that is um, uh, entertaining and 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 important at the same time. I think that uh, the, like what have happened with a certain kind of art house cinema is that it's posing that this is an important film by being boring. Uh, and uh, now we're doing something that is poetic, you know. Come on, you're boring. <laughs> and I think that the, uh, the art house cinema have to question itself in the same way that we're questioning romantic comedies, because it's just two different kind of genres almost. Mm. You, you can do a genre movie when it comes to an art art house genre movie. So uh, for me, it was a, really a goal to break free from that. So what like, do you think you're questioning? In this film? Uh, what I'm questioning when it comes to. If you're looking at art house and mainstream and genre. No, but I wanted to be free from that genre mm. thing. I mean, I think that I have been connected very much to art house cinema, of course, because I, I, I enjoy art house cinema. I love like cinema that is trying to raise questions that is not only the simple questions of like Anglo Saxon dramaturgy, you know. Uh, but I really think that there's a way of doing that that is outside the box of the of the traditional art house cinema mm. and the the genesis for this film the square that came from your own collaborative uh installation yeah and what was was there a particular moment during that point that inspired you to think oh there is a feature film here uh, for me i mean i mean the square in itself this symbolic place that should like remind us about uh how we are as human beings and the humanistic topics and things like that. Uh, I, I thought it was exactly like the PR agency are saying. These these topics is too general. Mm-hmm. Everybody agrees. So why should I why should I engage myself in it? But when the PR agency, as an idea, came into the film, you know, we 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 have a PR agency that is supposed to promote a very humanistic project. Uh, but they do it by a very cynical campaign mm. and they actually succeed. I love the irony of mm. that. Mm. And for me, that's where I thought, okay, now I know how I should tell this movie. And that the PR agency is working on this video to go viral. And that's obviously something that I think, well, particularly with this and Force Majeure, where it was a few YouTube videos that inspired scenes for that film. So and here viral videos have become part of the plot. I was wondering, was there any videos that, that you were watching, like short stuff on Facebook or YouTube that then influenced the square? The YouTube video in, in the film is called Blonde Child Beggar Get Blown Into Pieces. Mm. And I think that the title came first when it was mm. this. Uh, uh, like, you know, like you Google and you look through a feed and then you see like, oh, it's a clip here that is called Blonde Child Beggar Get Blown Into Pieces. <laughs> And <laughs> uh, so that actual clip was not inspired of, of anything that I've seen on YouTube, but more the attitude of news media, you know, news media have like, um, like uh, put up the, like the ISIS uh, the terror events over and over and over again, like, you know, quite horrifying clips where people get killed, they have uh, posted on their web, web pages um, uh, and in order to get attention to advertisement. And I think that, that's, that I, I miss uh, ethical debate about this behavior because I think they are just promoting the terror organizations mm. and they are recreating the problem, 
recreating the pro problem. A, a new young man will be exposed of these images, and he will see, ah, I can take, I can play the part of being a martyr, uh, and I, I will get my face and my name in the papers, and I can be this public martyr. And if, if you are a lack of possibilities in your life, then this can be mm. seen as a possibility. So I think that that's something that I like what the really what the, the PR agency and their strategy is about in the film. Looking at the idea of things going viral to do with videos, there's the idea of some maybe something getting taken out of context and being repurposed. And I think that looking at the viral video that they make there, they're aiming for one thing and completely land on another. Yeah. Um, and I was thinking actually about this film and the the press that came up after it, mm. after its premiere at Cannes, and the, the maybe the image that everyone is sharing is the image of Terry Notary on the table. And when you actually watch the film, that, that is a very small segment of it. And I think people are just looking at the way the internet has received this, this film. They're mm. perhaps, before they watch it, expecting something completely different just from a single image. No, that might be true, but you know, I think that what what that scene is for me it's like really pointing out the thematic in the film quite much you know uh, the scene is about like the bystander effect that we actually are herd animals and when it comes to taking responsibility for an example in a public space or uh, on a bus when something awkward is happening the reason that we get paralyzed is because we are afraid and like don't take me don't take me take someone else and that kind of bystander effect, you, you can look at it also on a society level, like is there a kind of bystander effect when it comes to responsibility, what's going on in the world now on a society level and on an individual level. Um, so m for me, even though it's not like um, maybe portraying the film in the best way, for me it's like an, an, an image that is like highlighting the, highlighting mm -hmm. the thematic of the film. And uh, Klaus, your character is victim to the bystander effect and the thing that really gets the plot going when your when your phone is mm -hmm. and wallet yeah. is stolen yeah. and as the film went on for me a few of the scenes kind of blur the lines between what's part of the exhibition and what's actually part of the reality of what's happening to your character but in that sense i think th that um it's a quite straightforward story um, okay. um so you've got the feeling that it's like almost an installation in an installation um, not necessarily like that, but there are a few scenes that kind of get out of his own control. Yeah. That may have been intentionally meant to be. No, but I know which one you mean. You're talking like when he's digging in the trash bin and yeah. things like that. No, I, I guess so at least. Mm, or yeah. Yeah, no, but um, I would I can answer a little bit on that. And of course that I think there was like an abstraction level that you wanted to reach at a certain point because, you know, we are telling the film in a quite naturalistic way, mm. and I think it's always interesting to to break the agreement that you have with the audience like now this film will be told in this way and also maybe that scene was like trying to portray what's going mm -hmm. on mm -hmm. in his head mm -hmm. you know more of that so but, but to me to, to be in it um i thought every scene was actually dead hands-on it's not it's, it's like well now you go through the trash now you talk to this woman now you write this note now you drive this car i mean it's mm -hmm. it's all very doable just do it mm. stuff so I, I never had the feeling that I was 
an art installation in an art installation. Yeah. I just had the, I just every day just went to work and, and Ruben said, can you do this now? Okay, yes, <laughs> I'll do that. Uh, um, so, so no, um, if, and I, 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 I don't even, I, 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 th I think actually in order to sort of liberate yourself from, I mean, as an actor, I don't really want to know what the theme or what, I mean, I don't want to play that. I just want to do what mm. is in the situation. I mean, if I, if I set out to sort of say, okay, this is a very, uh, this is a guy that, that does, um, he, the theme of the guy is like this. If, if you try and play that, yeah. it's like, it's going to be a mess, I think. It's, the theme is going to come from when you, Put all the scenes together, but but in a in 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 your actual scene today, you just need to relate to what is here, mm. because I think if you do the other thing, it might it's not going to be very clear. Yeah, and one thing that I think would be key to the performance, and I think is you're, that you kind of worked in in previous films and extending into this one, is the manners and language that has come with our kind of new tethering with technology and the rules that we haven't quite established yet about how people react to mobile phones and when you can take something out and when you can't and when you can take a photo and when you can't and I think that's a really interesting dilemma that comes up in here beginning with a chap losing his phone and just how integral mm. that now has become mm. Mm. yeah definitely I mean, actually, the thing about trying to get back your phone by looking on Find Your iPhone was happening with a producer that I, that I was working with before. She got her uh, iPhone stolen, and she she had exactly that feeling, you know. I have all my mail, I have like mm. my bank numbers and everything like that, and uh, still she didn't want to erase it. Um, but what she did was exactly like this. She was checking which building it was, and then she went together with her mother out to that building with a note saying if you don't return the phone within 24 hours the police will come here you know uh, and uh, I went up in, an in the elevator and put a, uh, a note in every single notebox and the, and the funny part about this is this was happening when we were shooting play that is about like these boys that lives yeah. in the other part of the city and mm -hmm. you have prejudice about those people yeah. living in the other mm -hmm. part of the city and she was working with this film that was like dealing with the middle class prejudice about the, 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 the other part of the city the, like the ghetto part of the city and suddenly she finds herself like standing there putting in the notes in the mailboxes and she suddenly starts thinking what am I doing I'm, you know, <laughs> I'm, just, I'm doing exactly uh, the thing that I should not do and I should have learned it about the film yeah. that we are working yeah. on right now you know um, I remember reading that on set James Cameron it would take if someone's phone went off on set he would take a nail gun and nail it to the wall uh, um, and oh. I'm wondering what your treatment would be of people's phones on set now because it has now become such a, a key thing I them. must say it didn't happen that often I think people respect the, uh, the rules much better in yeah. our shootings than <laughs> yeah. in James Cameron's what kind of a crew does he have <laughs> everybody's I mean but I've, it's just a uh, it's a question of just having a worth ethic about it, I suppose. Mm. I mean, it's like, he did that. He nailed it to the, <laughs> to the wall. Yeah. What an asshole. What an <laughs> asshole. <laughs> um, so naturally, uh, before this, I was checking out some interviews um, on YouTube as well and stumbled over your interview in the Criterion Collection cupboard. And you mentioned Catherine Breat's Amasur. 
mm. uh, for its new at the time new approach to sexual content mm. uh, there's a sex scene in in the square that's quite original particularly for its aftermath um, I was wondering where that scene came from and how that was filmed it happened to Klaus he told me that yeah. story yeah. and uh, it's actually from my private one of your private collections. Yes, yeah. yes. Okay. Yeah. No, but it, 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 that scene actually happened to a friend of mine. So, and um, I just thought it was a fantastic, awkward situation that was about, like, do I trust this person or not? And do I, like, or and am I going to be tricked now or am I paranoid? <laughs> you know, that feeling. And We should perhaps say that the monkey was not in... I mean, your friend, she didn't have a monkey, did no, she? No, no, no. no. <laughs> <laughs> um, there's another scene uh, following that one with Elizabeth Moss involving a very loud exhibition that kind of controls the conversation. And I remember watching Force Majeure and thinking that you've used this idea of background or Atmos sound actually coming from the background and taking over a yeah. scene before. And I wonder what interest you about that and for yourself uh Klaus, whether having that chair exhibition in the background is almost like a third character in the scene that you it is around. yeah and and uh and it's like um I, I i remember because i was actually when we sh when we shot it it was like you had the button that sort of and i i started i i, I started to sort of calculate when is he going to push it <laughs> And I, 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 at the end of it, I was like, okay, he's going to do it now. And then mm, <laughs> it's very stimulating in a way mm. because it's bloody thing annoying. But still, it's really stimulating that something, you know, sets um, the agenda for what you can do and what you can't do. All of a sudden, you can't say anything because nobody can hear it. Mm. Um, and also the agenda is that there's a woman just around the corner, you know, looking at us. And so, so all these... It's really helpful in a way. It's really stimulating in terms of of setting the agenda for what you can and can't do. So I actually, um, it's just it's just really good fun to play with. Yeah, yeah. There are a few scenes where I was unsure how composed it was and how much room there was for you to play around with it or improvise with it. And it's interesting there that the the sound of that exhibition you're actually controlling it's not on a loop that you get used to no so you was there actually quite people might think this is a very um, like composed and precise thing with every shot but there is a, quite a bit of freedom in the film as well sure i mean what what i really wanted with that scene my first intention was to put that dialogue in a pub where they were looking at the important football game so there were people like sharing when something happening in the football game and what i wanted to was someone interrupting them in the dialogue at very awkward uh, uh, positions you know like you have said something you know you have been inside me and how do we solve this and then like and then you have to stand and wait and look at each other before you can answer you know i, I was really really fond of that idea but then I decided to put the scene instead in the in the museum, and then it, then we just like I used the idea of like a, a painting. There's a painter that I love that have made paintings of big piles of chairs. Uh, so we decided to make like a chair installation that is like moving and like. A <laughs> 
and then like randomly then it comes like that the chair is crashing down on the floor and then i had like this button so i can just push it and i was just waiting for like the moment when i feel this is most awkward for you yes. you have to wait for a pause now you know so uh and I mean, for me, it also makes the, the actors on their toes that, you know, that they have to be present 100 mm. percent in every take because something will happen in a different way than mm. the take before. And if you get a little lazy as an actor and you know that I, I know destruction now, mm. then you don't have to be there 100 percent. Then you can like rely on the structure and the presence in your face and the mm. presence in your acting becomes a little bit less um, and in that and that's what i mean when i say it's a gift because it's actually there's a motor running it for you mm. because you mm. can you just need to be there and then you know that something is going to push you yeah um it's like or if someone just came into the scene and just sh shoved you or slapped you or i mean it's like that thing um it, it's sort of Right now, as we're sitting here, something might happen. Yeah. I mean, and, and that is what makes us uh, present, I think. I mean, that you relate to. I mean, there are people going out. What are they doing out there? And you, you sort of, you're here. And the thing, and that's really the very interesting thing with how you work. You sort of inspire that all the time, that you sort of make sure that, because other, other um, directors will really want you to sort of do the same thing over and over and over and over and over. And, and here we, we do it over and over and over and over <laughs> again, but we slightly change things all mm. the time. And that, that sort of re is really inspiring. Yeah. Brilliant. Well, thank you so much, guys, for coming on. Well, it's thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right. Over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. So let's get on with it then. The Square. This is, I think, for me, a very fitting follow-up to Force Majeure in that they both focus on how one relatively minor bad decision um, creates a kind of endless cycle of discomfort and social awkwardness and the kind of collapse of this the lead character's idea of his own you know, masculinity and self-worth. Um, but I think, safe to say, this is 
much more ambitious than force majeure and much more kind of sprawling. Mm. Yeah, definitely. Um, it's funny you mentioned Pigeon Sat on a Branch uh, earlier because in that that feels like a bit of a sketch show turned into a feature mm. film that we start weaving in and out of. There's elements of that in the square that yeah. he's uh, picking up these little like gems of ideas that he wants to fit into this film and then he just finds this gallery setting is such a brilliant way of linking up these awful situations. Mm. Yeah, I, th- I think that that's one of the interesting things about the film is that it's not a... It's not necessarily. I mean, it's been it's obviously it is a satire about the art world, but it's not precisely attacking the no. art the art world. That's a vehicle to kind of talk about all these other issues, and it's not just a kind of virulent attack on on the art world. He's still kind of in love with art in a way that that, that mm. it has a meaning outside of the gallery, and that's actually I guess what he's trying to get at, which mm. is that that the art has an importance. Uh, but the kind of gallery space and the way it's presented is alienating for for people. Yeah, well, it's really interesting that he um, he actually did this exhibition himself. So uh, it was uh, Ruben Oslan and a, uh, a collaborator whose name I've now forgotten that they both actually did this version of the square outside of a museum in Stockholm where they put this amongst the cobbles outside the museum. They put this white square amongst it and put that caption that we hear in the uh, at the start of this film the square is a sanctuary of trust and caring within which we are we all share equal rights and obligations yeah and and actually put this out there and i think what austin's interested in is just seeing what people are going to react to i don't think he put the square out there because he actually believes 100 mm. percent in that, in that mm. statement he's putting it out there to see how people will react to it and what happened is Someone proposed to someone in the square. Someone threw up in the square. Someone yeah. got a fight in the square. Um, and then the event that starts off the whole film of someone running into him and then actually realising that that's a way to get his wallet stolen. Mm. Um, I think like that's the starting point of how people are really going to treat this yeah. broad sweeping statement of art. Is it really actually going to be treated in any way by the public? Are they going to notice it whatsoever? Yeah, mm. Yeah, I think that his filmmaking style seems to be to test always kind of testing whether something is truthful and whether it works i mean in force majeure he's his kind of background was he started shooting extreme sports videos people skiing and what have you so he kind of knows that world already and then again in in the square it's it's like test making up this idea and then testing how people behave to it mm-hmm. and i think he does the same he does the same thing with the actual structure of his filmmaking, where a lot of these scenes are 50, 60 takes. And the process, as he describes it, is finding whether people will behave in the way that he, he's written it. Mm-hmm. So people are responding to the, the lines he's written, and then he'll change it if he feels like that isn't how someone behaves. So I feel like the whole process of, of writing and then shooting the film is to see whether this is hu- this is the human behavior that he yeah. expected or or is it something well, different? I sp- yeah, you spend a lot more time with him than I have. Um I wonder does he so he writes that character but then that character must then by the 50th take have taken on a lot of what the actor is as well. Yeah, he's writing that character for the actor to then turn it into their awkwardness too. Yeah, and I think that you know that, that I think it's quite an experience for the actors. I've, I mean, if you read some of the interviews with 
like Dominic West and, and, and Klaus Bang, it's like, it's a culture shock when they first do it. But then it kind of opens up something that they're, they're, then their character is, their personality is like, would I do this in this in this instance? Mm. And that I think that's good. Then they become, they they feed into the into the character for sure. <clears throat> I was talking to you guys a bit before we were recording about how I find the film very similar to Kirby Enthusiasm. It follows one man through the world of celebrity essentially as he sort of experiences his way through social awkwardness, questions sort of the boundaries between moral and immoral, uh, like correct and incorrect behaviour. And there's one scene in particular, I think that's the condom scene, mm. which is extremely Kirby Enthusiasm. Yeah. And even it could even be like a episode of Seinfeld mm. called The Condom or something, you know? It's got that kind of balance between like tearing apart the minutiae of everyday life and like you really overthink one little thing. Yeah. And that's what the film Well, does I think constantly. this is an opportunity to delve into Christian as a character. Yeah. And let's look at those other, other characters that he meets along the way, yeah. including Elizabeth Moss, who uh, this condom scene is, like, well, for me, one of the highlights. Yeah, he's met Elizabeth Moss's character. Well, the, and the opening scene is her interviewing him, isn't mm. it? Yeah. And that, is this where we have the what is art? Yeah, yeah what is art is right at the start. <laughs> yeah. yeah, And then a piece of, like, that she reads out a little uh, description of one of the artworks mm. that they've exhibited in the last uh, yeah. uh, pre, pre, in the last year. And it's kind of ridiculously pretentious yeah. art speak, which apparently Ruben stole from <laughs> someone who works in the... He's a professor at university... And he stole this completely verbatim from the someone who works in the art part of the, the art school in the university that next door without permission. Uh, so it's genuine uh, art speak. <laughs> Excellent. Um, but his the way his answer when he talks about how um, you know if if we put your handbag on the floor over there is that art. That's such a non thing to say. Well, he, uh, he's just he, said completely nothing because yeah. he can't think of whatever else to yeah, say. Yeah, he like throughout the film, he's just answering people's questions with questions because <laughs> yeah. like is he like throughout the, you are thinking is he just an idiot? Yeah, <laughs> and, that, and that's like a very Larry David thing yeah. to do, isn't it? To like just bluff your way through yeah. through through life. And I think it is the same obsession. Like Larry David is obsessed with like the social contract. Like what are yeah. the rules that we've designed for living? And then if people disobey them, that's yeah. where the comedy is, or that's where he gets kind of outraged. Yeah, the debate over like you can't do that, you can do that, you can't do that. Yeah, yeah. like how do you how how do people queue up for yeah. shops? And like <laughs> if you stop following the rules of that, like everything suddenly can like yeah. the whole of society yeah. can break down. Yeah, can you call someone after ten? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, there's uh, they obviously have a uh, a sexual relationship together. Uh, throughout the film and the condom scene I guess is just so yeah. speaks, speaks volumes about Christian I think yeah uh, in which very little... it takes a while for like as soon as this dilemma for him is creeping into his head we know exactly what he's thinking mm. that this woman is going to try and steal my condom because yeah. he's I perfect used, yeah um, but that the scene just drags on and on <laughs> and it's so awful but so so funny and Elizabeth Moss is excellent in it. She's yeah. uh, so deadpan. Like her eyes are really expressive in it. Yeah. There's a particular yeah. just widening of her eyes yeah. that she can do so well. Yeah. Uh, and in this scene, and her comic timing with the opening of the top of the bin yeah. for him to put it in. Oh, yeah, yeah, she brings the bin to the bed, doesn't yeah. she? Yeah. Um, 
And she also has a pet monkey that's climbing around the house during all of sure. this. And it just goes on and on. And there are just a number of these scenes that you think have reached their limit, go past yeah. that, and then go further than that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and just stretching out these incredibly awkward social interactions to their breaking point. Yeah, totally. And I think the scene that is has become perhaps the main talking point of the film for a lot of people, it's on all the posters and... You were saying then that there are a lot of scenes that go on much longer than you expect them to, perhaps much longer than you want them to, <laughs> longer than you can stand, is mm. is the ape scene, the man-ape scene. So yeah. this is... Um, so Terry Notary, who, if you don't know, you probably don't, he um, is a motion capture actor who was in all of the Planet of the Apes films. Uh, he's in Avatar, and he was in Kong Skull Island. So Ruben Ostrom's clearly brought him because he knows that he can act very convincingly like an ape. Uh, he actually just Googled man <laughs> behaving like an ape. And this is what he got. Yeah. Like, this is... <laughs> he is easily the world's best person at pretending to be an ape, though. Yeah. I mean, that is <laughs> pretty much his job. There's absolutely yeah. no doubt about that. <laughs> like, I mean, if there, I mean, there, what's his name? Um, Andy Serkis yeah. yeah. would give him a run for his money. But I think... Terry Notary yeah. is number one. Oh yeah, one. I think Terry Notary totally descends into it. Where I feel like Andy Serkis, there's a you would think, oh, it's Andy Serkis. Yeah, like there's because there's a celebrity to it. You couldn't. That would be weird if it was Andy Serkis. Yeah, but this guy, he's just you believe that he is that monkey. <laughs> it's so <laughs> weird. It's such a strange scene to watch. Yeah. So, someone mentioned earlier that there's very little con- uh, exposition. I think that you're kind of just and this especially you're just thrown in that this is to do with some exhibition in the museum, mm. but you have no context what it is, what it means, what it is in the museum, but it's at like this kind of gala event. And he's brought in as like, literally as a performing monkey mm. to, to make everyone laugh. And uh, he takes it way too far. He's smashing glasses, climbing on tables, dragging women away, mm. and it's going on and on. I think, I'm not sure how long the scene lasts. It feels like an hour. But, <laughs> uh, it's, uh, I think it's, about, I, I, the thing is I've watched this over and over because we're, we're, this is the clip we sent to yeah. all press and, and uh, TV and what have you. Uh, so I think it's about 11 minutes, but it, I've, I've probably watched it 20 times <laughs> and it does not get boring. Yeah. It's just, it's one of the best scenes in cinema. Full stop. And what, it, it's just brilliant. I tweeted this thing out around the Oscars, uh, around the idea of if every category of the Oscars could be given to a single moment so, of that craft. So, like, if an editor could be rewarded for a single cut, what film's cut would that be? Yeah. Um, uh, or an actor for a single moment. And my brother sent back that the single moment for him would be the first time that Terry Notary slaps out the guy's <coughs> glass. Dominic West. Yeah, yeah. Dominic West. Yeah, glass. Like, that moment is brilliant. Well, that's that's where that scene kind of turns, isn't mm. it? Because before that, everyone who's at this kind of gala dinner watching this performance is kind of laughing and just like, you know, this guy is a really good performer. They're, you know, they think it's going to end in a minute. Mm. And then as soon as he smashes the glass, everyone in the room's head goes down because they yeah. realise this, this isn't 
they, this, they, they could be the next that gets picked <laughs> yeah. on and they're just like I want to avoid Everyone's this. looking down <laughs> yeah like, please don't it's like when you're at a, a play or something there's audience interaction you're like oh god or a comedy yeah. show please don't come over to me please yeah, don't yeah. Do it. yeah. Or, or even someone being Larry on the tube yeah don't talk to me it's exactly that <laughs> behaviour isn't it just like please don't pick on yeah. me well if like, as, like Terry Notary is the star of the show in this scene but Dominic West does so well in it and yeah. like he looks like he doesn't know what's going on uh, he does it yeah. so well to the point that you think that this is take one, which yeah. is obviously not. Yeah. But to have been able to yeah. maintain that embarrassment and yeah. fear 50 yeah. times yeah. is an achievement for him. I think what's great about the scene is that on on the surface, it feels like, I mean, it's never spoken about again. It literally is there and then it's gone. It has nothing to do with the plot at all. But I think like thematically, it's all about this kind of division between um, like art and reality. Like, what do you accept when it's art and when it's actually happening in front yeah. of you. Yeah, and I think that goes back to Force Majeure and his other yeah. work about reducing people to their primal instincts. And this is a very like blatant yeah. uh, reflection of that as well. Totally. And yeah. I think that that's the journey that we see Christian go on through the film is that he starts in this perfect life yeah. and it's gradually peeling and pulling away at that. So we end him like, like there's a point where he's rummaging through these like dirty rubbish plastic yeah. bags. And you're kind of seeing him at his lowest point as well. Yeah. There's also the question of um, like endorsement as well. Like, is it actually part of the act that he's supposed to be, um, that, uh, is it Oleg he's called, the uh, the character, the ape? Yeah, yeah. Oleg, yeah. That is it part of the act that he's supposed to go far with it? Like, is this, is this the art mm. when he drags the woman away and people rush to, yeah. to beat him up, essentially? Is that part of the act or... Has he taken it on himself to go too far? Is this... Yeah, well, and I think that strain runs through the film. That yeah. You begin to question what's part of the uh, gallery and what's not. Yeah. Yeah. And there's a, the, actually in the script, it's um, it ends with him being given an award for being like a brilliant monkey <laughs> actor or this... So like, and I think that's quite interesting. It's like the, that award process of can be that distancing of something that was too shocking. Yeah. Like, and I think that's a kind of interesting added kind of element that like something was horrible and shocking before and then we find ways to kind of compartmentalise yeah. mm. what's happened and by giving it an award that kind of it's like, oh this horrible thing happened, but yeah. actually we now we all know we always knew it was art. Yeah. yeah the yeah. whole thing was art. Um yeah. So do you seen the script before the film? Yeah. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um how did the film stand up to that initial reading? It's funny because there's so much stuff in there that, like, for example, exactly that monkey scene where you just like, you don't really know yeah. what that's going to look like at all. So the kind of progress to to the film is all is actually so much better, even though the the, the scripts read kind of in an entertaining way. The the, the final thing is is really interesting, and in that scene, there's a uh, I remember Ruben saying that the with a bit where Klaus Bang stands up and tries to end it, that was like a that was a that's an ad lib from 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 Klaus. Right. And there's all these little ed- added little elements that come in through the process. So you wanted to pick apart Christian's character a bit more earlier, and I think the best way the, one of the, the scenes that does that really well is the, uh, the kind of event that kind of kicks off the film in a way, and this is the fact that he's mugged mm. and he's conned. Um, but it's in a way that he he thinks he's helping someone. Yeah, and I think this sort of like yeah. beautifully ties into the message of yeah. the square as well. That he, this is at the launch of this new exhibition, which is all about creating a place where you will help other people, 
and like the his like descent into turmoil begins with him thinking how much of a Samaritan he is. <laughs> so it's a woman who's trying to get away from someone, and then um, as he goes to help this woman, he's pickpocketed basically. Mm. And I love how they use the uh, Find My iPhone website as a source <laughs> for creating like complete chaos for this guy's <laughs> life. I've I've never used it. Well, no, I, would you would you go and track down your phone if someone stole it? No, I just like I, I if you can find the iPhone, you could just like ring the police or something. No? Yeah, I think they say, please, if you find your iPhone on find your iPhone, don't go and find your iPhone. <laughs> yeah, but I think like, he's got a proper hero complex as well. Yeah, I he think. does. Like, that he wants to be the guy that does it. Yeah, um, and that he's got the cool car, and that he can play the loud music, and he can drive there and be the dude that. Yeah saves the day and I, I love just how badly that plan is executed <laughs> yeah. bring it up again is such a Larry David thing to do like write a letter and post it to every single person in the building yeah <laughs> yeah, yeah I, it's like it's going back again to that kind of social contract thing isn't it that like yeah. both Larry David and um, and Christian in this film they want people to live up to the standards yeah. of what yeah. we've all agreed to uh, and just the hilarity of actually trying to force that through compared to kind of everyday behaviour where we we're, when we mostly let that slide. Yeah. They're these characters that insist on, on enforcing these rules. Yeah, and this is something that really carries throughout the film, isn't it? And the the young boy's reaction as well. Mm. Someone brings up about how so the actual, the square, the exhibition, why would it be so small and how can people share rights and obligations when gender, race and class disparities are so apparent in western society and that's reflected in what he thinks is okay to do in the building mm. compared to what the boy who actually lives in the building does as well oh yeah he's completely contradicting his own yeah. exhibition the whole way through the film and that's that's like that's the big joke running yeah. through it i think so i guess yeah you've kind of got loads of various we spoke earlier about these different vignettes going on and one of the big ones is about this pr campaign behind the square these two ad execs that create this completely tasteless like really horrible commercial for the museum and it just creates this like storm of controversy around everyone and yeah. Christian's so wrapped up in his own life and his phone yeah, and that like, he doesn't like, pay any it attention is to so it. It's so terrible um, that like, the, the descent comes from just the fact that he doesn't have his phone yeah. which is great. Yeah, um, And th this PR campaign because it's just so so bad but you can't not watch it. Like yeah. it's like you just want them to keep pushing. How bad can we make this? Yeah. yeah. But that everyone in the room is so convinced that it's brilliant. Yeah. And what's so bad about watching this scene where they're giving this pitch, um, is that it's totally believable. Yeah. That so everyone like no one wants to tell each other that it's a bad idea, and they just keep rolling on. And the guy at the top who's so distracted by the fact he hasn't got his phone has agreed to it. So therefore, everyone agrees to it anyway. And then they spend millions of dollars making a an excruciatingly offensive video to promote their gallery well the f i think i think the interesting thing would be to watch it with uh with a few pr agencies because i think most of them would say that it works mm, yeah. like, <laughs> <laughs> like, like it gets in the news cycle doesn't it like i think that's the kind of the timely element of this of of the square is talking about you know how the news cycle works and how everyone is kind of at the mercy of of getting the clicks and getting the views and that this thing that they this this ad that they cook up works for exactly that purpose even mm -hmm. though it's kind of 
horrendous. It totally works. And um, I think what's really nice is that he as a director is embracing that. He's one of the few directors out there that's like embracing the internet and looking at stuff on mm, YouTube yeah. and actually realizing the place that film has up as a whole has yeah. like for people that they're going to like this is a film full of clips as well that people are going to find yeah. and they're just going to get them on YouTube and I don't think he's against that yeah like, I, think he actually, he, I think I read I read an interview I don't think it was a UK one um, where he was talking about how, how he kind of considers himself as part of a kind of newer generation of filmmakers and he referenced um uh, the film Tony Erdman and Yorgos Lanthimos, who are kind of taking these ideas that we're familiar with from kind of European tradition of art house cinema and making them entertaining because there's no other way. You, you have to present them in, in, the, in the way that we're talking about. Otherwise, you're not going to mm. find the audience. Mm. Uh, and how that, that's kind of how that is affecting a whole generation of filmmakers. And I, I think you can see that in the in the change in the kind of films that you're seeing at, at in Cannes competition and the way that kind of intellectual ideas are having to be presented. You're a proponent for uh, Klaus Bang as Bond, aren't you? Oh, yeah. Like, you see him in this. He's totally Bond. Uh, and he's... I, months ago, I did a Klaus Bang impression that I remember you said was really good and I haven't been able to do it since. <laughs> yeah, try uh, again. Why uh, don't you try now? Well, what's, it, what's, it, what's a good line? Um, if I put your hand back... Just here. Is that art? Yeah, that's quite good. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> You're not going to be Bond. No. <laughs> You'd um, be a villain. He's a bit fuller than that. Well, he'd be a great villain as well. Yeah. But I think like there's something about him that would be totally Bond, and he looks exactly like him. He like, could wear the red glasses still. I, I don't hope so. Mm. Those are some cool glasses. They're pretty cool glasses, yeah. I'd be totally up for that, but he I has, could see him as the villain. He's been cast as a villain in um, the, the Girl in the Spider's Web, I believe. Um, yeah, that's yeah. right, yeah. Yeah. Uh, where he had to have peroxide blonde. Mm. Oh, wow. Uh, so I, th I think when they went to the Golden Globes, he had his hair dyed oh, peroxide okay. blonde, which for me seems like the perfect thing to happen to someone from a Ruben Oslin film where you'd have <laughs> yeah. to go around <laughs> telling everyone why you've got this ridiculous haircut at an award <laughs> ceremony. Um, Joe, were you, in, were you in Cannes for this one? I wasn't, no, no. Oh, right, okay. I suppose it's quite interesting going back to the Palm d'Or stuff because like, I think I'd be interested to see your reaction about what it felt like on your end to see this film win that award that I don't think a lot of people expected it to be and what you think maybe this film mm. as a Palm d'Or winner says about that festival mm. like because it was the year before I think was I Daniel the year Blake. before was I Daniel Blake and everyone yeah. expected it was going to be Tony Erdman yeah uh, what did people what was the front runner for last year was it Maybe um, you were never really here. I think a lot of people Begala. expected over Loveless or, right, yeah, that was or, or 120 Beats Per Minute, mm -hmm. which are, I guess, far more in Can. the vein of Cannes, Can. you know, yeah. What, yeah. What, what a Cannes film is. And I, th I think it is really interesting that they've given it to, that, or they gave it to The Square, because I probably unlike probably 20 years of Cannes films, you could see this, if a, if a kind of, popcorn audience of of multiplex cinema goers went to watch this they would get something out of it mm -hmm. you know it's not to disparage those other films because obviously we love them um but i think that is a that is a kind of interesting choice for them to have to, yeah. have, to have picked the square after watching it i did kind of feel like was this can's way of like acknowledging their own 
identity. Ridiculous. Their yeah, own, their like, own pretentiousness. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And that you give this award, it's them saying, guys, ha, ha, guys we get, we get it. it. Yeah. We're, we're running it yeah, too. Yeah, we're cool. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and then like that only adds another layer of it. And I imagine Oslin would get a massive kick out yeah, of them yeah. doing that yeah. as well. Yeah, because I went into this film because I knew it was going to be two and a half hours long and I was prepared to not get it. <laughs> I was prepared for the uh, the sort of social commentary and art commentary to kind of go a little bit over my head. But it's surprisingly, I don't know, broad? I don't know if that's yeah. the word. I mean, it is, I mean, it's broadly comic. Yeah, I mean, like, like there's borderline Mitchell and Webb stuff. In yeah, there. yeah. <laughs> um, great. Any final thoughts on the square then before we uh, wrap up the show? Uh, only that I love what you told me before we came in about the title of his next film. The Triangle of Sadness. Ah, the yeah. Triangle of Sadness. <laughs> yeah. Indeed. Yeah. The, this the Triangle of Sadness is um, a plastic surgery term. So it's the little bit between your eyes and just above your nose, uh, which your surgeon, if you go, if you speak to him, will uh, say, oh, we'll get rid of the Triangle of Sadness. You look very, you've, you've, wow. you've got a stressful looking face. We can get rid of those wrinkles. Don't you worry about that. Brilliant. I just want him to start working through all the PlayStation. All the shapes. No, just PlayStation controls. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I look forward to that. The He'll cycle just of trust. Yeah, yeah. And then just X. X. <laughs> there we are. The Square is available in Curzon Cinemas now, as well as on Curzon Home Cinema, so you don't have to leave the comfort of your living room to see this. It was nominated for Best Foreign Language Film but it lost to A Fantastic Woman, which we did on the show a few weeks ago. That you were and... sad about that. Uh, yeah, you can't, you can't... When you've got two films up for an Oscar, <laughs> you, you, it's very uh, pleasing. <laughs> the two favourites, you're like, oh, it doesn't matter. <laughs> <laughs> oh, the Square Eight swept the European Film Awards, didn't it? We haven't yeah. mentioned the European Film Awards yet, oh, yeah. which we were there for. That was great. And they, like every time it was one of... Like, actually, we went to the ones before, and Tony Erdman and... Like they just kept going up every time, and then this time the square they just kept walking Everything. up. And Ruben Oslin kept getting everyone to do a primal scream, like instead of doing oh, repeatedly. Yeah, yeah. wow, just Fantastic. Uh, instead of doing this, like do a little speech, but most importantly, just scream at everyone. <laughs> yeah, that's amazing. It's quite something to see. Uh, as we mentioned earlier, if you do have any thoughts on the square, do let us know by emailing podcast.curzon.com for next week's show. The podcast is available weekly on iTunes and Acast. And if you like the show, please subscribe and leave a review and a comment. Okay, so that's uh, that's it for this week. So uh, before we say goodbyes, how many hammer blows out of 10? Oh, it's 10. 10, 10, 10 hammer blows out of 10. 10 sledgehammer blows for me. <laughs> there we go. Full 10 hammer blows. Thank you very much for listening. Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie, All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. 
every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.